0: Five, four, three, two, one,
1: zero, all engine runner, off. we have a
0: off. Hello Space Enthusiasts, welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy, by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. So, Space Robots, just the title already sounds promising, right? If you're thinking R2 Detail now, that is actually where the episode starts. But we then move quickly on to talking about the use of robots for satellite servicing, because that is what Rogue Space Systems from New Hampshire is working on. My guest is the CEO and founder, Jeremy Grimmett. It's a fun episode, enjoy! Welcome, everybody. I'm thrilled to be here today, joined by Jeremy Grimmett from Rogue Space Systems in New Hampshire. Hey, Jeremy, how are you?
1: It's a pleasure to be here, man. So happy we were able to get this together.
0: Yeah, same here. Really excited to talk about Rogue. So why don't we start off right there, Jeremy? Why don't you give us the short elevator pitch on, on Rogue?
1: Well, make it very simple. We're building R two D two, but for real. R two D two was an asteroid. One of the opening scenes in Star Wars Episode One was R two D two and his buddies going out onto the wing of a spacecraft, trying to fix it while it's flying and getting away from the uh, Trade Federation. And he was able to fix it. And that's that's effectively what we're trying to do. We're trying to build little robots that can go out there and help us uh, fix stuff in space.
0: Yeah, I'm really happy you picked R2D2 as an example there because you know I, I was waiting for you to see. I was waiting for you to say space robots, and and you know, long time listeners to my show know that I'm a huge fan of Battlestar Galactica,
1: so I would have thrown okay, the whole okay. I would have thrown the whole Cylon thing at you. Oh no, we don't want Cylon. Well, actually, kind of thinking about it, we they do have AI built into them, so but we're not going to let it get that far. We'll totally Isaac Asimov the three into it. So I, I the, noticed you know, the name the of the company is Rogue. <laughs> well, listen, pretty much anything and everything. Look, I, I got to tell you uh, Rogue is the essence okay, origin of, of, of the name who we are. <laughs> well, we actually started off under a different uh, a different name. It was a decent name, but it was a little too close to SpaceX and we didn't want any confusion with that. We didn't want any issues, so we sat down myself and a couple of co-founders, we we sat down and we kind of thought things through and we talked about everything that really described who we are and what we're trying to do. And I got to tell you, whenever we went into GoDaddy, Rope.Space was available and it was like, that's just providential. So, boom, it was done. <laughs> we decided right then and there.
0: And that, that similarity with SpaceX is something that you guys sort of proactively perceived and wanted to avoid, or did actually somebody knock on your door or send you an email? Oh,
1: no, 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 no nobody knocked on our door. Uh, we proactively looked at it. It was like, you know what, we just don't want to have any possible, you know, malperceptions or anything. We wanted to make sure we we respected other trades and stuff like that. So it was a smart move, and we've gotten great reception on it. We don't even do our logo the same way as everybody else does. I think some of our some of our spacecraft are like spam they have got like spray painted logos on it. It's pretty fun. We we have a lot of fun with it, and, and people love it. And so, how does one come up with the idea and the desire to do a company
0: uh, making space robots? At like other than if you are watching BSG like me? And <laughs> yeah, well.
1: Uh, it, well, it, it's uh, it, it's an evolution, right? So rarely does a startup actually begin and end up with where they, they started out. It's an evolution of That's ideas. Right. And so this all started off with a research paper that I did at school. And as it turns out that I want to say it was 2017, 2018, there was the U.S. government tracked about 300,000 potential collisions of space debris in orbit. And I don't know about you, but that's that's the kind of statistic that really sticks out in your brain, right? Yeah. And so, I, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about it for months, and I just can't let it go. I'm just thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. And at some point, I said, um, you know what? I really ought to look at this as a potential business, because if there's 300,000 collisions, that means nobody's doing anything about it. So, I I started doing research, and there was another class uh, teaching the new space economy, and so I took that under uh, Professor Frank White, and it was an amazing course. Uh, During there, there was the MIT Space Conference on March 15, 2019. I Mm -hmm. went there. Spent eight hours, talked to venture capitalists, talked to all kinds of different people that were there. Figured out what it took to actually get into the space industry. Walked out the door, called up my business partner, told him I was done, and I'm starting a space company, and that's it. I That was literally it. March 15, 2019. Never forget it.
0: Good timing. It's about when I sort of really got into the space industry full-time. Oh,
1: really? Myself. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic.
0: Been floating for it for a few years, you know, um, and then, then like 2019, I was like, no, it's it's like now or never. <laughs> this industry is happening now.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, whenever you see the acceleration of investment into this sector and understand that most of this, most all the spending That's done in the space economy is non-discretionary funds. I mean, it's money that it's got to be spent. Space is not something that's really an option of whether it's not a luxury; it's a necessity. Whenever you understand that, there's, I want to say, a two hundred thirty-some odd billion dollar space economy every single year, and one hundred and thirty-three million of that is consumer satellite services, and then you've got you know, a $3 billion underserved satellite services market that exists. I mean, it's it's almost idiocy not to pursue it. But as I was saying, uh, Rogue was an evolution of ideas. We were attempting to go after the space debris market. We were attempting to go and do attack that. But as you get into the business planning and as you get into the structure and you start figuring out where is the money? It is not in space debris. We started doing a lot more market research trying to find out where the pain is. And that pain is in satellite services. It's in insurance costs. It's in insurance losses. It's, it's in annual revenue losses by these satellite providers, even strategic and defense losses. Those are all real problems that exist out there. And there's precious few, if any solutions i mean that's just the reality of the situation
0: when you say satellite services do you mean like the same thing that i usually think of which is thing that things that comprise for example uh, life extension refueling and, and and so forth as well
1: sure and that 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 it's kind of like a d or e all of the above yeah uh, and i think that's kind of what makes us unique is the fact that we're not trying to solve one specific problem. What we're doing is we're providing a suite of capabilities that allow for multi-mission application. The solutions we have are dynamic and flexible. You may not need one orbot for one particular mission, but you could use a combination to accomplish something. And each of them are progressive. So our our smallest and most basic ORBOT. Uh, scales up into the much larger uh, Orbot, which is, you know, heavier robotics and excuse me, heavier robotic arms, things of that nature. But it's all an iterative, uh, progressive uh, development of uh, technology uh, that scales, yeah. and then it provides a suite of capability. Rather than Rogue just being this company that focuses just on this one little widget, we provide a suite of capabilities. I like the name you came up with, the, the
0: ORBOT. It's a clever, right? It's you, you just switch two letters, although I, I guess that must give a lot of problems of like autocorrect. You have to switch off the autocorrect. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell, I gotta,
1: I gotta tell you, every time we type ORBOT, the, 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 Orbot. the damn thing... Yeah, it, it's... Uh... It's an orbital robot, and so we had the attorney go into the USPTO, and they went and trademarked every single thing that was to do with space and robots for orbital robots, so... Yeah. It's an orbital robot. It's an ORBOT.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit more about some of these examples. I mean, you mentioned multi-capability. Some of these example use cases of what the ORBITs would actually do on a customer uh, spacecraft.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. So we have uh, we have in development three different ORBOTs. Uh, you have Laura, you have Charlie, and then you have Fred. Very common names. Laura is inspection and observation. Charlie think laparoscopic surgery in space. And then you have Fred, which is basically your forklift, heavy mover. Um, Funny side note about Fred. During the course of all of our different interviews and market research and, and things like that, we've had engineers that have had decades of experience ask us, is it possible for you to get something out there that could just jiggle something swear to god that was the technical word jiggle if you just had something out there you could just jiggle this thing we think just, we can like, get it, it, back doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't like your computer doesn't work you bang it on the side
0: <laughs> pretty much Yeah, it's basically it's, a concept right it's like yeah it's, it's we, just la- just
1: we lost telemetry of our satellite <laughs> just knock it on you the side it, could you travel you know could you travel like a couple million kilometers worth of home and transfer so you could go smack this thing around for us We think that'll get that thruster looser. There was an instance where a solar panel didn't deploy uh, because it got hung up on some insulation. And so if somebody just had like a little pair of scissors to go and snip the insulation, that would recover 50% of that satellite's capability. So there's all kinds of different uh, uses uh, for each respective one. And of course, like anything, like any new technology, just just like your cell phone, you would have never imagined you would be using your cell phone to do 3D imaging. You never thought you'd be using your cell phone to track everything that you do and where you are and where you go. And what I believe is that as our technology uh, gets brought into the market, I believe the customers are actually going to figure out different ways of using our Orvots that we hadn't even thought of. So it's exciting.
0: It's interesting. So you see it almost more like a platform that you just have these like what it's called like general capabilities of probably, I don't know, like movements and many degrees of freedom and and things like that. That's right.
1: Okay. And like various access. Actually, Fred has a tool belt on him. Uh, So we took the idea of a CNC machine, so Fred will have the ability to grab another tool, uh, just like it's in the CNC, you swap out a tool, same basic concept, we can swap it out for different sensors, different grabbers, different mechanisms. Uh, that might be needed up there. You know, Charlie's a little bit different. He'll have a tool belt as well, but those are more fine robotics, uh, kind of like uh, squid-like arms, very similar to something that you might see in The Matrix. And, I mean, it's all science fiction type of stuff, but it's, it's all stuff that exists. It's real. People are, you know, we have surgeons performing surgery on human beings from hundreds if not thousands of miles oh, sure. away. Yeah. Why can't we do it in space? It's a little trickier. Don't get me wrong. It's a little, it's, it's a little trickier. But um, these are all problems that I firmly believe. I always tell, I always tell Mike Peek, our, our chief innovation officer, my COO, John Beam, I always tell him I have full faith and belief in the blinding capabilities of the rogue engineering team. <laughs> so I, I'm fully sure that they're going to be able to solve a lot of these problems.
0: And you just mentioned CEO and I real and head of innovation. I realized I didn't uh, include your title in the intro. I think you were the CTO. Is that correct?
1: No, I am the CEO. Ah, you are I the CEO. I wouldn't dare. Yes, I am the CEO of Roadspace Systems, and I would not ever dare to try and claim to be the CTO of any sort. I have an engineering mindset. I like to uh, fancy myself as someone that that's heavily engaged with the engineering. But you know what you know, and you know what you don't know. And I'm very good yeah. at telling you which what I do and do not know.
0: Okay, so c- coming back to the the orbots,
1: um, so yeah. interesting. I have to ask, Laura, Charlie, and Fred. So where where did this come from? Each one of them actually have a little bit of a story to it, and it's kind of rooted in who we are and trying to make things accessible. So uh, Laura uh, is named after my adoptive mother. Uh, she passed away in 2018. Yeah, it was 2018. She, uh, December. 2018, she passed away. So she's a, that was the first one. Uh that's Laura. Not only that, but uh I mean, mom's always watching, and that's what Laura does. She's she's always watching. Yeah. Uh Ch- Charlie is uh named after the father of my COO. His father passed away uh, in 2019, or excuse me, 2020. And then Fred is our chief innovation officer, my other co-founder his uh, father-in-law passed away uh, and his name was Fred. So we've tried to humanize the orbots. Uh, we gave them these names because they were they were common names and they personalized them and I wanted people to feel like they were accessible and they had traits of these people that were important to us, which is one of our mantras. We want to we want to give everyone everyone an opportunity to join us in this adventure. And that, thats one reason we do things the way we do them at Rose.
0: This is probably not a bad strategy. I mean, I, I think if they had given this, the the Cylons and BSG some like like nice <laughs> nice normal names, it would have been less scary. Or for that, it's probably something like Boston Dynamics should do as well. They should give like you know cute names to their robots. It, it, it may
1: not—it may not be a bad idea. But then again, you know, you got Space Odyssey and HAL, so. Yeah, so, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> that guy enough. was a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you were talking about sort of
0: remote surgery, which is obviously okay. So you, re- you basically use robotics, uh, robotics at uh, one end, right, and on the other end, you still mm-hmm. have the, the human basically going through, completely controlling the robot to a
1: degree. Yeah. And then,
0: and then, but before when we were talking about all of this BSG stuff, we already mentioned or you mentioned autonomy and AI. So what is yeah. the mix here that works in space? Obviously, we have a, I guess, in low orbital orbit, the latency. Isn't that great? But still, there's some latency. How much do you? How much can you do autonomously, or should you do autonomously? And how much should or could a human be involved in guiding these robots?
1: So, our first priority, our highest priority at road space Systems, is safety. Uh, that's the a number one thing: safety for the orbot and safety for our customer system. So that has been the AI that we have put first and foremost, which is part of the ASOP suite AI enabled sensory observation platform, ASOP. There's two things that ASOP does. One, it makes sure that it operates in a safe manner. It's monitoring all of the sensors uh, for anomalies. We even have the ability to listen to another satellite. Even though you don't have sound in space, we can actually listen to another satellite. So if you hear a bang that's probably not a good thing. And you probably want to back away. It's also monitoring for debris and objects that inside of its operating environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's got the intelligence to back off. Also, we're using AI to assist us in the noisy and the difficult communication environment that we're in. Uh, So if a... If something is running or an operator is trying to manipulate something, the AI can help complete or back off of the handling of that instrument in a safe way while they're performing those tasks. There's a lot that uh, we're doing, especially on the communication side, to help with AI being able to make, these, make some safe decisions uh, for us. Because of that communication delay, where those split seconds actually uh, count. So whenever we we're operating, safety is the chief primary concern. And that's really what the priority of our AI is, is to make sure things operate safely. And we're developing and building algorithms that, that help us do that. Would humans be involved at some point in, in sort of Oh absolutely. Yes. The AI is it's like a safety net. It's watching what's going on. Uh, So that we don't have to, it's not so much where we're not watching, it's humans are humans, right? I mean, we're going to miss something. There's there's human error somewhere. And the AI is that safety net to say, hey, you know, this isn't safe. We need to back off. We're going to take control. We're going to move this orbot out of the way. This is why we're doing it. This is the anomaly that occurred. Once you make it safe, let's go back to work. That's what the AI is effectively doing. It's a safety net.
0: Okay. So, so like when you perform a repair and you leave a screw somewhere where you shouldn't leave a screw, it's like, don't leave a screw there.
1: <laughs> don't leave a screw. Or actually, if the screw's floating around, the AI would see it and say, "Hey, dude, you left that screw there. You know, don't
0: don't yeah, do that." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so probably a stupid question, but so how does the Robot get to the customer spacecraft.
1: Out of all the challenges that that we have looked at with robotic, with robot servicing and orbital services in general, propulsion is probably it's probably the biggest issue. So what we did was we hired an absolutely brilliant plasma physicist to help us uh, design an engine that works the way that we need it to work. The reason we're doing that is because to to perform these services, you need, it's not that you need a lot of propulsion. What you need is you need very efficient propulsion. And the only way to really get that level of efficiency is to go electric. The existing technologies are just simply, they're not where we need them to be as far as an off-the-shelf solution. So what we are using right now, or we're using a couple of off-the-shelf solutions for our demonstrations. And we are in the process of designing and building our own propulsion system, primarily for FRED. But we get them over to the customer either using FRED, which has dispensers on it, um, or uh, depending upon the mission uh, and the amount of Delta V necessary, Laura and Charlie couldn't get there themselves. So there's onboard propulsion, full six-axis control, which basically means you can move in, in any direction. Um, highly, highly agile little robots, which is another thing that makes makes these things so special is because they are just, they're packed with so much power and technology and capability. It's
0: Pretty unreal. It's pretty cool. I guess I should have been clear on my question. This sort of the moving around, I guess, once you are close to the satellite and the sort of like the fine movements, right? And you probably have like mm-hmm. you know, various clusters of thrusters to do that, right? And oh yes. But sort of getting to the spacecraft you want to fix in the first place, mm-hmm. like would you hitch a ride? Can you do it yourself onboard propulsion, or how does how would that?
1: Yes, work? it it really it really depends on the, it's very it's highly circumstantial on the mission. Uh, we'll be catching rides. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes we'll catch a ride up. Uh, it, it really depends. Uh, we have our own propulsion. We could get dropped off within several tenths of a degree, maybe another, a, de- a degree or two of inclination, and we can move over and, and, uh, get there. We just happen to be a, uh, ride share, like a 12U rideshare. We can get there. Uh, otherwise, we'd need help getting to like very far distances, like GEO. So, sure. you know, Laura and Charlie, they wouldn't be able to—they wouldn't be able to go to geostationary orbit. That—that's not going to happen. There's just not enough uh, delta V in that those little engines. Fred, on the other hand, he can go damn near anywhere he wants. I mean, he's—he's he's awesome. Lots of lots of fuel, lots of efficiency. So he can go to—he can go to GEO. He can even go out lunar uh, if he
0: needs to. And so, and so, yeah, that brings up a question. So, what about sort of like the size of these, these orbits? Are we talking sort of R2D2 R2, size or Cylon size or, or bigger? No,
1: no. These guys, are, these guys are pretty small, which is another very unique characteristic of them. So, uh, Lara is uh, a uh, 12U orbot, it's a CubeSat. Charlie is a 16U. So if you don't know, uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about uh, CubeSats, but essentially a, a 12U is 20 centimeters by 20 centimeters by 30 centimeters or something like that. And then the uh, Charlie's 20 by 20 by 40. Each U is 10 by 10 centimeters. Yep. That's a 1U CubeSat. Fred, on the other hand, he' a little hefty. He, he's, he's got some girth to him. Uh, He's got two one by seven meter solar panels in a 38 38 or 40 inch uh, wide ring. And then we equip everything around that ring, around and inside that ring. We have some drawings and some concepts coming out on him uh, in the coming weeks, Uh, but we have a proposal for him that we're getting out that we want to see have the potential customers see them before we actually put them out because he, he's he's pretty cool he's a pretty cool looking cat
0: yeah i I'm really look forward to, to seeing that i'm sure you can do some like cool things with design and
1: uh <laughs> design features there <laughs> yeah we have a pretty amazing guy we, we uh kevin carico uh is one of our uh design engineers between him and uh and mike pika those guys are just, they're unreal. They, they come up with some really great engineering, some great concepts.
0: Yeah. And then so how does it work sort of the, you know, when a customer basically uses the service? What I mean by that is, is it sort of like uh, in response to a specific incident? Like, you know, you'd send up an orbit or is it sort of like some orbits may actually ultimately hang out in space because something happens all the time somewhere in Leo or uh, how do you envision that?
1: Yeah. It's it's all about customer demand, and the business model is set up to where uh, we've got a couple of different ways that we can provide those services. Uh, you got on-demand service, you have a subscription service, and of course, you've got your you know your one-off dedicated missions where we would go and babysit the deployment of a of a much larger asset to to support and assist in case something were to happen, uh, where we kind of stand off. There's there's all sorts of ways that we've come up with. Uh, to try and help uh, satellite providers and provide these services. Uh, but we're pretty flexible on, on how they get delivered. Uh, one thing that we're, we're not doing is we're not really selling the ore bots, uh because what we do, if you look at Rogue, uh, we are a services organization. We, we deliver service. We focus very hard on developing, designing, engineering the technologies that allow us to deliver those services. We're not worried about manufacturing. We have a wonderful partner, NanoAvionics, who I'm sure you know. The sponsor of think... this podcast. So yes. Oh really? <laughs> I didn't even realize I did. I had no, I, I honestly had no idea. But NanoAvionics is is they've really been amazing. We've been working with them for just over a year. Uh, their CEO Brent Abbott and I. I, I don't know what it was. He and I just, we just hit it off uh, for Nano Avionics US and he and I just hit it off and it's Kim uh, and the team at Nano have really grasped the concept of what we're trying to accomplish here because the way that we design and the way that we're putting this, uh, putting our systems together is kind of contrary to the way it's normally done. The way it's normally done is you know exactly where you're going, exactly what you're doing, exactly, I mean, just, you have all these very specific parameters. We don't have a lot of that. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know how long we got to be there So many things that we don't know. So we have to design the system from a very ubiquitous, very utilitarian type of manner. And Nano was the uh, group that actually grasped that concept. Pretty excited and happy to be working with those guys.
0: So coming back, sort of like you know, when when you'll be doing this at scale, like what is your best guess? What will be sort of the most frequent use case, other than the the jiggling, banging on the side?
1: <laughs> well, well, I want to be clear. No one is going to go jiggle or bang on any satellites unless specifically requested by the customer. It's not like we're just going to go. You know that that's not something you do in space. That's a very bad thing. You don't go anywhere that uh, you don't go anywhere near someone's stuff without very very clear parameters and permission. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, I want to say that by 2025, we're looking to have maybe 40, 45, uh, 40 to 50 assets on uh, orbit, uh, out in and around geostationary. Uh, that's really where we're targeting. Uh, most of our our services is out at geostationary. That's where the most value is. Yeah. So that that's that's kind of what it's going to look like uh, going forward in the next few
0: years. So then you could like make any sort of repairs on those big geo, big expensive geostationary. It's that, not
1: uh... just about doing in situ repair. Okay. We're designing our systems to be able to tow back as well. Okay. So part of our development roadmap is swarm in cooperation between the orbots, where it could be a group of FREDs that link up together to bring an asset back uh, into low Earth orbit to allow commercial astronauts to do those repairs. Axiom Space, uh, NanoRacks, they're all making fantastic uh, progress on the commercial space station side. So, by the time our capabilities are there, we believe that there's going to be a garage for us to bring some assets back uh, to get worked on. I think that uh, whenever you look at the overall landscape and you look at the use cases, benefits that there are to the customer, they're saving tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars by us bringing it to the garage and uh, carting it back out as opposed to uh, just simply leaving it there and letting it die and replacing it waiting three five seven years to to get a new one up there there's all kinds of possibilities uh, again I, I'm really excited to see how the customer and how the market starts driving the use of our systems um, that's what I'm really excited to see because the world's a very creative place and the customer and the market have a great uh, have a great uh, great imagination so i'm positive that there's going to be a lot that we're going to be able to do with cooperation on the market.
0: But, but when, when are you going to have the first one of those, any of the three in, in space, you think?
1: It's funny you should say that. Um, we are, right now, we are tracking for June 2022. Okay. Uh, June t- June 2022, we're looking to put our first demo flight up. That's the way it looks right now. We were actually just offered another ride in May of 2022, but I don't think we're taking that one. Uh, At least we're not seeing justification or capability to get there May, but uh, June. And there's a few reasons. Uh, The May launch is out to uh, Geo, and I don't think we're going to go to Geo yet. Uh, We want to go and do our demo uh, right here in Leo, and we'll uh, we'll shake it out, test our AI, test a lot of our, our sensor arrays. We'll probably be following on in a few months after that with a couple more demos. I think Fred's going to be out there uh, in. I think Fred's actually going to get out there before Charlie. I think Fred's going to be out there in 2022, first quarter 20. Or excuse me, first quarter 2023, and I think Charlie is. Uh, he's going to probably be out there late 2023, early 2024. It all depends on funding. It all depends on demand. Yeah. we're trying to let the market drive what we do. And right now, the big push has been uh, Laura and Fred. Those are the two big ones we've been getting asked for.
0: And when you say you're getting asked for, are you having these conversations with, for example, geo operators
1: um, already? Look, it's, it's been nuts. The conver- it, In the past, I got to tell you, in the past month, we've gotten so, our pipeline has just, it's literally just blown up. If you'd asked me a year ago, the, the pipeline that we got right now, we've had requests. So far, we've fielded two requests for Lunar, three requests for Geo. Uh, these are all transport using Fred, And then a couple of LEO uh, missions for, uh, for Charlie, excuse me, for uh, LARA. Our pipeline is quickly filling up. Our conversations are proceeding very quickly. Again, no one's happier or more surprised about it as to the, to the rapid pace it's uh, progressing. Nobody's more pleased than I am, believe you me. Yeah, it's it's very exciting, very, very exciting. Yes, let me ask you a probably
0: difficult question. Um, so so ultimately, the, the types of services you're going to be offering with, with, with Laura, Charlie, and Freds, how much would they cost? I know it's going to depend on the service and where. And
1: It's going to depend on the service. It's going to really, really depend. Um, it's a, that uh, unfortunately, that's not a question I'd really want to uh, try and uh, say right now, simply because it really depends on the market. We had um, I, what I will tell you is this, we've had conversations with insurance providers, especially insurance providers. Where their savings are tens of millions of dollars just simply by going to look at an asset, something that they don't have the ability to do today, and understanding what happened or if there was a meteoroid strike or any number of things. But the value of each of those missions there's a, there's a very large cost benefit to each one. Uh, and the costs, it, whenever you look at uh, a launch that might cost $85, 100000000 million, you know, you could pay... A, a small percentage of that to get Alara to go up and babysit that asset. It's, it's almost like a small insurance policy in itself.
0: I mean, you could actually even structure it that way, right? You could have sort of like mm-hmm. people buy sort of like a Laura Charlie or whatever insurance just in case they need it. And so like everybody pays a little bit, but in case you need like, you know, Fred... Uh, because of your insurance policy, so to say, Fred can come along.
1: Yeah, that's it. and you know we're working with uh, several very very large insurance providers uh, to uh, to try and help provide those incentives because uh, space insurance has really taken it in the teeth in the past several years. Yeah, uh, so we're we're trying to support and help with that. Um, there, there's benefits all the way around for everyone whenever you start talking about robotic services and and assistance it's, it's, uh, there's huge benefits, uh, monetary and in, with respect to space policy, space debris, and sustainability as a whole.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what you said at the beginning of the conversation, it strikes me as very true that you you have to find the parts of the market where you can make money, at least initially. I mean, we could go on hours about the whole space debris thing, right? But, you know, at least at the moment, it's just so unclear yeah. to many people who, who will pay for it, why. It's just as, you know... <laughs> Like, you know, perfect. I can boil uh, if you want.
1: Yeah, and if you, listen, if you want, I can boil space debris down for you. There ain't no money in it, okay? And listen, I'm an altruistic guy, okay? I'm a big believer in community. I'm a huge believer in uh, cooperation. Uh, Rogue is active in our community right here in New Hampshire. We're trying to help educate kids. We're trying to put space programs into the schools here. I I bring in any and every intern that I can possibly do, you know, get my hands on to to get them involved in space. I I do everything that I can to help out the community. But there ain't no money in debris right now. And we can't do good in the world if you ain't got no money. And until Congress uh, gets... Uh, listens to the Department of Defense and reduces the orbital uh, decay times on debris and abandoned spacecraft from 25 years down to their recommendation, which I think it's 10, you're not going to have any progress. Nobody's forced to you know, pay for it until there's some sort of tax levy. or some sort of super fund yeah. uh, created. You're not going to have any traction. So yeah. you got to go where the money is. Which you would have then that tax would you would have to ideally globally coordinate, which is no easy task, either. No, that and, and nobody nobody wants to touch anybody else's junk. You know, nobody yeah. wants to do anything about it. I and mean, then you get into national security issues, and, yep. and it's it's a mess. I think the European Space Agency director had said, "Imagine if we had left every single ship that's ever been built." Just to float out there on the ocean. Imagine what the ocean would look like. That's exact, and that's exactly what we're doing in space right yeah, now.
0: Yeah, but but you're right. But if there w- if that was the case, and there was some you know defunct uh, U.S. aircraft carrier floating around, like yeah, nobody would touch it. <laughs> just just yeah, nobody's gonna touch you it. You wouldn't go and like probably you probably wouldn't go and jiggle a Russian
1: defunct spy satellite. <laughs> just... Yeah, it, it's it's probably a bad day. That's the that's the kind of thing that'll get a hellfire missile sent up your rear end. You know that this is not a good. Idea idea. Um but what we're doing is we're attacking debris uh from a different way. So we we're coming about satellite services is basically a proactive uh debris mitigation strategy. That's effectively what it is. We're trying to prevent more debris by fixing the stuff that's out there or reclaiming assets that maybe just didn't power on. There's all kinds of things that we can do out there. Um, But debris is just simply not a money maker right this second. There's been a couple of articles. uh, There's a couple of Space Force generals that have come out and said, hey, we need to do something about this. And it looks like money may start coming through. But until that happens, I mean, there's just no money in it. But Rogue is prepared. Uh, We have the technology. We have some gadgets that we've come up with that are really cool to go and deal with that, but right now we're focused on on, uh, orbital services, transport,
0: yeah, and then again, I, I think you're right. On the other hand, I also hope it's not going to take some catastrophic event with debris to to wake everybody up. But again, we could go on for hours about that. But I just realized yeah. talking about debris and everything, I, I forgot to ask you one thing on the, te- on the technology side. So for all of this stuff, if it's debris removal or other types of servicing life extension, the other thing you need is um, basically like RPO and for non-technical listeners is rendezvous and proximity operations. Sort of just the, the, the ability to get yeah. close to something and use like, Yes, sensors with a light or optical to make sure you yes. don't smash into the thing, but you approach it in an, or like a coordinated way. Yes, uh, you guys It's actually something that all of the satellite servicing guys uh, need. Uh, right now, I seem to have this situation where pretty much everybody's trying to do it in-house. Um,
1: that doesn't well, seem to be an we, off-the-shelf solution. What are you guys doing? We've done it in-house. We have our own proximity AI. Ours is ready to fly, actually. we're We're ready to go. Um, our AI is currently running inside of STK systems toolkit. Uh, so uh, yeah, our AI is uh, ready to go. Um, but that's what we're doing from proximity from proximity operations. That's all part of ASop that's part of that safety algorithm um, is to be able to conduct uh, and operate in a very close up close and personal fashion. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, we did it in-house. Uh, it works. It works beautifully, and um, we're looking forward to getting on orbit next year to, to test it out.
0: And then the, the actual robotics parts is, is also something you guys have developed in house.
1: Yes, to a large degree. So, um, what uh, again? What I what I what I said before uh, holds true. We focus on the technologies that enable us to focus on delivering the services. So we're not worried about building our own, you know, reaction wheels. Sure. We get that from nano. We don't want to worry about building our own flight computer. Again, nano. Uh, some of our propulsion, uh, we're gonna get some of that from Thrust Me and Dawn Aerospace, which I I think you uh, interviewed Steven. Yeah, uh, we had Stefan on like a few months ago. Yes. Yeah, Stefan. Yeah, Stefan's awesome, man. That dude, he's brilliant. That dude's, he's quite brilliant. Uh, so, between Dawn Aerospace, Thrust Me, Nano, uh, and then, of course, our mission planning partners, SEE uh, and uh, SPI, what Rogue's job is to do is to build a community of partners and community of investors and supporters that allow us to go on this journey and succeed together. Um, and uh, building this spacecraft is is a result of that. Uh, building each of these spacecraft is a result of, of that. So we focus on those particular technologies. Uh, our compute system—that's something that we're our AI and compute—that's stuff that uh, that we build and, and figure out in house. Uh, we engineer that stuff in house. Uh, computer vision—that's stuff that we do in house. Our uh, some of our sensors—that's in house. But the kind of stock stuff uh, that uh, nanoavionics, guidance, stuff like that, that's all stuff that we outsource. Now, we're probably end up, it's probably going to end up in a different footprint. Uh, So it's probably going to be the exact same chips, exact same stuff, but maybe in a different footprint uh, to meet with our volume matrix and the way that we want it to operate. But uh, overall. We focus specifically on the technologies that need the service, robot arms, things like that. We're looking at a couple of people for robot arms. That decision hasn't been made yet. We're... We're still debating that internally. I I
0: can think of some of the names you might be looking at there. In terms of the sort of like AI and space and sort of, again, for autonomous operations, because, I mean, because of, again, latency and sort of high relative speeds and everything, I I assume all of these calculations are basically done on the edge. So you have to have appropriate hardware on board. And these days, is there sort of like good uh, space-grade computational hardware? Because once upon a time, it was all sort of like... Space create computers are sort of like <laughs> 10 generations behind the terrestrial computers, right?
1: No, I could sit here and I can tell you unequivocally there's no no, there ain't no good computers out there for space. Well, I mean, there might be some, but um in order to do AI, no. That, that's not out there. And then you got the whole power and cooling sure. problems, which we're we've got some proprietary stuff that we're doing for cooling. Uh, We're looking at some different methodologies for cooling. There's a whole set of challenges that space provides a human to push themselves intellectually. I think that's why it's such an addictive frontier. It's because there's always another problem. You're you're never going to solve every single problem, but it's a hell of a lot of fun to try.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never stops. So let's talk about a common problem for a problem challenge for startups: uh, the the funding side of things. How how are you funding the company?
1: Uh, Listen, man. If my wife knew how much money I've spent on this company, she she'd divorce me. (laughs) But we have been very blessed with a friends and family round. I've supported it out of myself and my uh, my partner from my other business. We've 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 been doing okay in that regard. But yes, it is challenging especially whenever you're not located in the mix in the throes of an area that is all space you know uh, we're not in california we're in the middle of new hampshire we have great we have phenomenal access to brilliant minds out of boston mit tufts yeah. uh, brown boston university i mean we have access to brilliant brilliant people but this is not known to be a space hub uh, so, whenever you're trying to operate a space company out of New Hampshire, it's it's it gets a little interesting. So, what we've done per the rogue name, we've gone a different route and we kicked off a crowdfunding campaign on TrueCrowd, uh, T R U C R O W D dot TrueCrowd. We've raised about sixty some thousand dollars in there. It's uh, we've not really pushed it very hard. We've not done a lot of uh, advertising. We're going to be doing a very big marketing push starting over the next week or two, actually. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of perfect timing. But that's another reason why we decided to do it like that is because while there's a lot of money in space, one of the, v- the VCs and such, they ask, one of the first questions they ask you is, do you have a contract? Well, no, we don't have a contract yet. vis a startup, this is seed capital. If we had to we had a contract. I'd go down the street to the bank, grab a line of credit, and we'd be on our way. Yeah. That's why we need the seed capital. Um, so what we believe is we think we've got substantial traction. We've got a wonderful, brilliant team of people. And we said, you know what? Let's go and do this kind of the opposite way. Why don't we go see if the people want to join us on this adventure? And let's see if we can give other people the opportunity to invest in a space company that would have invested in a SpaceX, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, yeah. give them an opportunity to, to invest in a Virgin orbiter or, or some, uh, give them an opportunity to participate in space, join our community and succeed with us because we want to make it accessible to everyone. We want to, I want to give everyone an opportunity to get involved and be part of this, this really fascinating moment in human history. I'm very excited that Rogue is, is a part of that. And I think uh, crowdfunding is definitely a, a great mechanism uh, to do so. I think eventually we'll probably end up uh, getting some deals with VCs or major seed capital groups, family offices, stuff like that, all of which we're talking to and we have conversations with but uh we really wanted to try to get the people involved we get uh, we get offers for help all the time from just regular people uh wanting to be part of something and uh it's i think that's one of the, the best and most fun things about this is 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 getting it into the masses
0: yeah i'm i'm, I'm naturally a fan of uh crowdfunding space projects. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think space is just something that so many people are excited about, right? I mean, it's very hard to find people who are not on some level excited about space, right? And, and as you yeah. said, it's, it's, it's very hard for a normal person to invest in space because most companies are private. And then, you know, uh, many times you have to be an accredited investor if you, if you go through like a fund vehicle or something like that. So the crowdfunding is very interesting. And, and, and um, you know, what, three episodes ago, um, you may have seen it. I had my friends, uh, Brandon Aaron from Space Ranchers, on, which is basically a crowdfunding platform just for space and you know also oh yes
1: yes, yes yes
0: yes yes That effort,
1: I, I, you know raphael I, i'll tell you people people don't realize how close space is people don't realize that space is only 62 miles away they think it the they think of space as being this nebulous thing that is just thousands of miles away and it's not it's literally it's It's 62 miles over your head and you're in space. I'm closer to space than I am Boston right now. Okay. So once you, you help people understand how close they are to something, it becomes more real to them. It becomes part of their life and they, it, becomes part of, of their their day. And they realize, hey, I'm part of something that is that we can get to and we can as, all aspire to, to be part of. Uh, I like that idea. And I think that's another reason why we're, we're so focused on trying to help educate and bring kids in the community uh, into our, our little sphere of influence is to help them understand how close they really are. I mean, I certainly didn't have that growing up. I, I was, you know, deep South Louisiana. I, I had no idea how closed space was. I thought it was this, this thing that's just unattainable. But in fact, it's not, and everybody can be a part of it. Well said. So, uh, and, and frankly, this, this is
0: the same way I feel, and that's sort of the reason you're here today, right? I'm <laughs> and, uh, glad. I'm so happy to be here. couple of questions to wrap up uh, since we're running out of time here. Um, so New Hampshire. So, you know I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time in places you can imagine, like Florida, Texas, uh, Colorado, <laughs> uh, California, for the space industry. Uh, yeah. How do
1: you guys end up in New Hampshire? One, I was living here. So that's a that's a that's a good starting place. Yeah. So I moved to I moved to New Hampshire from Louisiana and um, I started a company here was successful with that. And uh, I started going to school and um, we said I started setting up the company and I said to myself, you know, I really ought to think about doing this in in Boston or doing this out in California or Texas. And I just got to thinking about, it's like, well, why not New Hampshire? Why why not here? I mean, we have access to 250, 300 schools within a hundred miles of here. Some of the most brilliant people on the face of the planet are are located right here in the Northeast. In the world today, why do we have to be in those places? And we don't. If anything, if there's anything that Rogue has taught me, uh, you could be in your mom's basement and start a, a space company. You don't have to be in those locations. Not only that, but the uh, the rent is like super cheap here. Which is amazing. Uh, so, um, and we have access to brilliant people. So why not be in New Hampshire? It is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Brilliant people. Once again, and it's got a lot of support from the community. We saw no reason not to do it here. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And as you said,
0: it's, it's a nice side effect. You you bring space into a community that otherwise wouldn't have been. That it. That,
1: right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's right. All right, and then, uh, so coming
0: full circle to sort of where we started with the R2-D2s and the Cylons, a uh, question I always ask at the end is uh, science fiction, do you like it? What do you like in movies, books? Oh, I,
1: I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big, I, I love I love science fiction. Um, some of our some of our orbots actually uh, take the form of, they have some influence from science fiction. Uh, so, for example, uh, Fred, uh, his paint job, whenever you see it, it's probably going to remind you of uh, of Ripley's um, uh, from Aliens. You know the uh, the the lift uh, the uh, mech suit that she wears. So we we gave it a pretty cool uh, mech suit kind of uh, vibe to it. Um, you know, when I think about Orbots, I think about the Exocomps episode from Star Trek. Um, how they were these little robots that went and did these jobs, and they had this artificial intelligence. And of course, you can't help but you know think R two D two and all his little space droid buddies. Um, I think it, it's been proven time and time again: uh, science fic- science fiction feeds uh, innovation uh, because without that, without that, without that inspiration, without that imagination. And that sense of wonder, kids all over the world, people all over the world think, what would it take to actually make that possible? Those dreams become reality. Everything from the flip phone, Motorola flip phone and the tri to what we're talking about today, which are Orbots and R2D2s and Exacomps. Um, I love science fiction and my kids love science fiction, and it's a great, it's a great time. Uh, to be alive and in this industry and i'm just really proud to be have a little part of it well, well said and I uh, can't wait
0: again to to see some of those those robots uh in physical form and with the paint No, and it,
1: and it, me too beautiful. man it's it's a lot of fun it's going to be a lot of fun cool
0: well good luck with all of that jeremy and uh thanks for thanks for being my guest today and uh yeah hopefully we'll speak sometime soon
1: Hey, well, thank you so much for having well, that's me. That's it for and, another uh, nominal well, episode of pleasure. the Space Business so thank Podcast.
0: You so much. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also, consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities, in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or are interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcastgmail.com. At I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.